0: You are listening to the Catholic Exchange Podcast. I am, I am, I Hello and welcome. This is Michael Lichens with you once again on this, the Feast of St. Catherine Drexel. She is the great American saint, and here we are in the frozen Northlands that she would have been known to her family. Yes, it's March, but we still have snow here at Catholic Exchange. If you don't have snow on the ground, just stay where you are and listen and read Catholic Exchange. That is your best option. Today, I want to give you an article from George Galloway. George is an author and novelist living down in Philadelphia, which means he's a Phillies fan and we can't hold that against him. But he's a talented writer, he's working on his first novel, and is a master of storytelling as well as history. This one he titled, St. Catherine Drexel, First Family of Charity. The family of St. Catherine Drexel of Walnut Street in Philadelphia has a storied history in a city deeply rooted in the American experiment. One cannot but marvel at the manner in which the family was touched by the major figures and events of the 19th and 20th centuries, and then how the Drexels influenced history right back in the lives of so many of the poorest of the poor. A legacy of charity that continues today through the work of the Sisters of the Blessed Sacrament that St. Catherine founded, and today in the answered prayers of people like you and me through the prayers of St. Catherine. A Silver Spoon The Drexels became the premier investment bankers of the nation after Catherine's grandfather, Francis issued government bonds that financed the Mexican-American War in 1848. Later, his apprentice sons, Frank and Anthony, teamed up with the legendary baker J. Pierpont Morgan, or J.P. Morgan, and through the extraordinary diligence of Francis's sons, Drexel Morgan and Company was founded and fortunes were made. Frank and Anthony would later become good friends of not only Ulysses S. Grant, but prominent politicians, statesmen, clerics, and the movers and shakers of industry. No doubt Catherine was born with a silver spoon, but not without a price. Her mother Hannah died of complications resulting from Catherine's birth. Less than two years later, her father, Frank, would remarry a girl from another storied family, the Bouviers. Her name was Emma, and it was Emma who raised Catherine, her slightly older sister Elizabeth, and little Louise who came along after the marriage. Emma's grandfather, according to family legend, served under Washington and Rochambeau at Yorktown. Her father, Michel, fought under Napoleon at the Battle of Waterloo. And yes, if the name Beauvoir sounds familiar, it's because a century and a half later, Jacqueline Beauvoir, a great-great-granddaughter of Michel, would marry John F. Kennedy. The love letter. But the real history of the future saint, even though it starts amidst the trappings of wealth and privilege, is hardly explained by it. The little Drexel family of Frank and Emma and the children Elizabeth, Catherine, and Louise, point a portrait far removed from the Gilded Age etched into America's consciousness of iron and coal barons, oil and rail magnets, and financial tycoons who dominated America's economic and social history after the onslaught of the Industrial Revolution tore down the fabric of the Jefferson ideal of the agrarian utopia. In fact, rather than defining the age, the Drexel family defied it. Sure, the three Drexel sisters, if one looks at a photograph of them, appear to be almost like play dolls dressed in soft satin and frilly lace. But that's only on the outside. Inside the home on Walnut Street, one would see a beautiful mosaic of humility and charity developing in the hearts of the children. This is a direct result of the love shared by Frank and Emma and is perfectly made clear by a letter written between Frank and Emma on New Year's Day, 1863. Please read the following carefully from Frank. Appreciate the Victorian age in which it was written and see through its rigid formality. Get into the weeds, read between the lines, understand the intense passionate commitment to wedding vows long since taken, and how that is communicated so deftly. The letter reads, My dear and affectionate wife, It is well at the beginning of another year to give expression to the thoughts that have been active in the mind during that swan just gone by, as well as to form resolutions which may govern us in the one to come. Many various blessings have been conferred upon us at the time we have been united. A special providence it has been that brought us together, and if we operate according to its designs it will be the means of amending much in us that needs correction. A similarity in feeling and disposition unless regulated by mutual love and forbearance does not in general produce perfect accord. What each of us offends in we are less liable to forgive in the other. Mutual forbearance is necessary for both of us, and for my part I feel that you have shown it towards me in greater degree than I have returned it. We have received many and various blessings, let us not be forgetful of them. But in the time they come, may we show by our punctuality in approaching the Blessed Sacrament and the attention and devotion that we manifest in preparing for it, that we appreciate the means of salvation which have been designed to sustain our spiritual life. May our hearts be continually directed towards Him who suffered and died for us and gave us His flesh for our life. When tempted, let us instantly call on our Blessed Mother. She is our friend and our help. God has bestowed on us abundance. Continue your charities in His name. Be the dispenser of His gifts and let us also extend the charity of thought towards others who offend us. In conclusion, my dear, dear one, let me wish you a happy new year indeed, a strength to bear all the little trials that may befall you. May a warm, tender, loving heart beat yet more tenderly towards your own loving and affectionate husband, pardoning him his faults and staining him in his trials, and thus make a home a heaven here below. Think of how much an aura of love and faith must have permeated that modest home on Walnut Street. And it was modest, considering the vast sums Frank had under his control. They could have lived in a castle. They didn't. What effect would such an atmosphere of undivided love have on these three girls? The abundance Frank speaks of is not recognized as his own, but as his gifts. This is truly a call not just to stewardship, but to discipleship itself. And now, let us put it into context. The United States was in the middle of a devastating civil war. Most of the victories at this time had been rightfully claimed by the Confederate forces commanded by the masterful tactician Robert E. Lee. The threat to the North of invasion was very much in the minds of leaders like Frank Dexel, who were called to finance the war. Yet Frank does not mention any of these things in the letter. His mind and his heart are concerned with something far more important, like eternity. Go fish. Emma's charity saw no limits. Three times a week, the needy would come to the Drexel home on Walnut Street for shoes, clothing, rent assistance, even burial money. Orphans were provided for, the sick would be given medical care, and each of these gifts of mercy was well documented so that fraud and abuse were kept to a minimum, and the truly needy were comforted. The girls were encouraged to participate in the ministry, but using only their own allowance. Was this largesse just an American twist on noblesse oblige? Did the Drexel family believe, as steel-magnet Andrew Carnegie did, in the Gospel of Wealth, where the newfound rich were obligated to give back to society but only under the stern dictates of the survival of the fittest? The answer is definitely not, and there's no subtle difference here. Philanthropic altruism, you know, the macro-idea of planned giving versus micro-act of charitable virtue, are truly light-years apart. To me, the asinine analogy of giving someone a fish as opposed to teaching them how to fish is, well, asinine. If someone is hungry, give them the fish, and then get to know them personally, and then, and only then, teach them how to fish. Not from a mountaintop of insurmountable wealth, but in the trenches where both the needy and the fish happen to be. As noble as the recent efforts of Bill Gates and Warren Buffett are, in what has become known as the Giving Pledge, where the billionaires promise to give half of their fortunes during life or after death to accomplish good deeds, what exactly besides money is being given, and for what purpose? Is this a virtue of charity? No, not exactly. What the three Jexel girls were taught was to get their hands dirty by personally involving themselves in the great unwashed, the oppressed, the downtrodden, and walking in their shoes. This is charity. This is what St. Francis would do. Elizabeth and Lois were not called to the religious life, their vocations were elsewhere, yet they lived virtuous lives and were dedicated to the poor. This is why Frank and Emma, I believe, were saints even before the crown was given to Catherine. Because from the seed they planted by their own love story, extraordinary blossoms burst forth in the lives of their children who, according to God's will, had no children of their own, but miraculously became real mothers of the tens and thousands of Africans and Native American people they served. And that was once again from George Galloway. This is called St. Catherine Drexel, the First Family of Charity. It's a very nice story I had never heard before of St. Catherine's family. If you want to know more about George, he has a blog. You can find it through catholicexchange.com. And all, I hope that you all are having a great day. I hope you can think of St. Catherine Drexel as we get through Lent. It's a hard time. This is usually when Lent promises are thrown into the heap and you forget all about them keep going. Trust me, it's going to be better. As St. Paul says, we're running a race and the crown goes to the victor. So keep on going, my friends. Otherwise, let me know what you think of this or any of our other stories. I'm at editor at CatholicExchange.com. I want to hear from you. Let us know what we can do to help your Lent become the best it can be. God love you. Have a wonderful day. Once again, this is Michael Litchens. Cheers.